And we're live. Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of the Wheelie Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Toll, and I'm joined again by Electric Seth Weintraub. How's it going, Seth? I'm good. Awesome. And we've got a great episode of the Wheelie Podcast for you guys this week. Uh, today, it's actually sponsored by Wolfbox, a leading brand in the automotive electronics market, currently offering 30% off its new Level 2 EV charger on its Amazon store for a limited time. We're going to have more on that soon, though. Uh, but first, we've got a pile of interesting stories to cover, all of the biggest e-bike and other two-wheeled e-thing stories in the last uh, week or so. That includes everything from uh, Segway's new futuristic electric bikes. Uh, we've got a story about the National Renewable uh, Energy Lab that has kicked e-bikes out of the buildings for fire hazards. Uh, we're looking at an interesting study that compared who breaks traffic laws more, cars or bikes? Kind of a surprising result there. Yamaha announced a new battery swapping initiative for electric bikes. And we're going to be looking at a few other stories as well, including an, uh, let's see, an electric snowboard, which I'm quite excited to hear about. But where are we starting this week, Seth? All right. Uh, Segway unveils futuristic new electric bike and arguably electric motorcycle. Yeah, this one's really interesting to me because Segway has really sort of reinvented itself and has pushed really hard into the e-bike and the light e-moto space. Uh, it started with those sort of knockoff sarongs, but now they're doing their own uh, in-house e-bikes, it looks like. They've got some strange names. Um, one of them is called the Zafari. It's like Safari with an X. And the other is called the Zyber. I, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it again, like cyber, but with an X. Uh, we'll start with the uh, Zafari, if I'm saying that correctly. And that one really is more of like a um, sort of classical electric mountain bike. Now it's kind of futuristic looking. It doesn't look like what we're used to seeing. It's very angular. It's almost, uh, I hate that I'm saying this, but kind of cyber trucky in like design, a lot of flat panels kind of thing. Um, but for an electric bike, you know, it's got dual suspension. It uses bike components. It looks like more or less what you'd expect out of sort of a, a trail bike kind of uh, situation. Now, it's still got a fairly typical electric bike battery, though it is quite large at something over 900 watt hours. So that's great to see, especially on a bike that people are presumably going to be taking, you know, deep into trails, really riding off road. Obviously great to have that extra power. It's also got three-inch tires, which is really interesting. You rarely see tires that big on electric mountain bikes. It's kind of a, um, I like to call it a balloon tire. It's somewhere between a, a normal mountain bike tire and a true like four-inch fat tire. But I know me, you're a big fan of the three-inch. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's great. Like it's, you know, yeah. best of both worlds. Obviously, you have the downside of both worlds as well. But, you know, I, I love three-inch tires. So it's great to see it. And we almost never see them in this large diameter size, yep. like on a mountain bike. So kind of a, a neat thing there. Um, but if the Zafari is more like traditional bike, then the Zyber is the opposite. It is far from traditional in any sense of the word. And while technically considered an electric bike, I think that you're kind of going out on a limb there. Like, yes, it has pedals, but it looks more like an electric motorcycle. Anybody looking at it is going to say that's like, that's a motorcycle. Um, it's obviously going to be, uh, you know, bigger, more massive. Interestingly, it has the option for two batteries as well. So what we're looking at here, it just has one of the 1.4 kilowatt hour batteries installed, but it's got space there. If you want to put in a second, you can get 2.8 kilowatt hours of battery capacity. Obviously, range is going to vary. I think they say it's something like uh, 90 miles or something. I don't think anyone's really going to see 90 that miles? Kind of range. Yeah, I mean, it's that's one of those things where... Know, um, 1. 4, a 1.4 kilowatt hour battery? No, that, that's with two of them, I think. They uh, say you get... Uh, okay, like I'll miles. laugh at the 2.8 kilowatt hour battery. <laughs> yeah. That's still. also kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're... I think that's using the uh, vestigial pedals that they've included there. Uh, I don't oh, think are those pedals on there? Yeah, yeah, those are, um, they, they have them flat, so it's kind of hard to uh -huh. see because they take away from the motorcycleness of it. Right. But legally, they're there. Now, Segway didn't give us a lot of tech specs here, including things like top speed. What they did say is that the Zyber, the motorcycle one, 
has a uh, 0 to 20 mile per hour acceleration time of 2.5 seconds. So we know it goes at least 20 miles an hour, but I can't tell you if this is like, you know, a class two e-bike or a class three or an out of class, meaning it would go, you know, over 28 miles per hour. So uh, until Segway wants to share some of those uh, tech specs with us, it's going to be hard for us to really classify these bikes. Um, the other important thing we don't have yet is pricing information. So we're really looking at sort of like um, power, motor, battery, and and basic bike design here is about all we can uh, suss out at this point. What do you think of, of what we at least can see so far, Seth? So I I really like the look of both of these. Um, I I think perhaps the uh, – I mean, so this, this one right here that we're looking at is looks kind of like a um, – commuter bike is that is that the same as the as the um or is the there other three bikes yeah yeah no it's it's two bikes so um the the two that actually have the guy on them that's the uh-huh. zafari uh-huh. um and that one it, it appears at least exists in some form you know some some prototype exists yeah, the other one on that's like uh just renders at this point cgi yeah so um I like all of these. I, I like that Segway's doing it because they are all over the place. They're at Best Buy, they're, you know, and uh, Walmarts and wherever uh, people go. Um, so that's a good thing. They look great. I actually really like the, the motorcycle one, um, but there's so many unanswered questions there. Um, obviously, the, the range of 90 miles on a 2.8 kilowatt hour battery sounds more like a pedal bike. If you, you know, if you're pedaling, uh, I don't know how you get that range. Well, I mean, I guess if it goes top speed is 20 miles per hour, then maybe that's how you get that range. Um, so it, a lot of questions still did, they didn't say the, the power of the, the output of the motor. No, I don't think they, they shared that figure. I'm guessing it's going to be one of these situations where the, the number on the sticker is lower than real life though. Right. I mean, the, it looks significant. Like it looks like it could be, you know, three kilowatt, five kilowatt, something like that, which would kind of put it up in Suron type of area, or I guess we should say Talaria these days. Um, I don't, uh, you know, like obviously that's going to be the the specs are going to be important here. Um, but I I love the fact that they're doing this, like building their own, especially. Um, I think it's these are great looking. Uh, vehicles it'll put more people on electric bikes um but i just don't you know like i would like to see these you know in i would like to see a finished product before i get myself too excited because we've seen so many uh prototypes that never you know like came to light a day you know obviously there's a saunders issue out there with the, the metacycle which is a different class of bike than this but there's also things like um van moof had a uh a motorcycle kind of uh, offering that never came to fruition. Um, I feel like Bird had something as well. Um, so, like, let's let's get this out, out and reviewable and, and make it happen. They look great. Um, if the top speed on this is 20 miles per hour, this is kind of playing into the, um, I would say, the Super 73 world. Uh, you know, you, you've got a motorcycle-looking bike but that it is still a bike and it goes bike speeds but i feel like there's an opportunity here you know i guess 28 miles per hour would make it slightly better but i don't know you know if it's over 28 miles per hour like first of all why have pedals on it and second of all like where is this going to be legal they're they're certainly not going to homologate it i would imagine yeah definitely and i don't think it's going to cut out at 20 for one thing if they're giving the zero to 20 mile an hour acceleration and it's as good as 2.5 seconds, that's some serious power. And you would like just run into that power wall and immediately it cuts out. Right. I don't know. That's generally not anyone's style. So I could see, you know, maybe it gets up to 28, but oftentimes you have that sort of power start to curtail as you reach the, the top speed or the electronically limited top speed. And so it makes more sense to me they give a lower number for the acceleration figure. Yeah, and I feel like Segway has probably like uh, lawyers and and people who are telling them like, hey, you can't just uh, 
have a you know a 50 mile per hour bike sold at best buy people are going to die on these things and you're going to be in trouble so i feel like i feel like there's a pretty big chance that these are not going to be motorcycle type speeds um unless you like you know like that saronster guy uh opens up bikes and upgrades them and i guess this one would be a ripe for that but um, still lots of questions here, I would say. Um, I don't know if I'd, uh, bet the farm on this one being a, uh, you know, a motorcycle type of thing. Uh, shall we move on to, uh, NREL, uh, kicks e-bikes out due to battery fears. Could it do better? Yeah. So this is another battery fire related story. In this case, there, there wasn't a specific fire, but the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado made a decision that uh, they were not going to allow e-bikes or e-scooters or any form of micromobility into their buildings anymore. So anyone who rides their e-bike to work, um, got to find somewhere to, to stick it outside, basically. Uh, I guess the issue is that they don't want people either charging or storing the bikes inside due to fire concerns. Uh, there was some discussion of, you know, we know that there are UL listed bikes, but basically it sounds like they didn't want to get into the hassle of like having to police who had, you know, proper UL certification and who didn't. And so they just made this sort of blanket ban. Um, now that I'm looking at it, it looks like the um, fire marshal who posted it on LinkedIn may have taken his post down because we had embedded it, uh, which yeah. is unfortunate because he had a, a picture in there, which... I think he thought was a good thing to include. It was their solution, which was, he said, to install bike racks and outdoor charging stations. But it was a picture of like a sad little three stall bike rack and like a rusty electrical outlet on the side of a brick building. <laughs> like it was not a, a great looking piece of infrastructure for someone who's going to lock up and charge their multi-thousand dollar electric bike. Yeah. So in this case, it just it seems so ironic that, you know, a, an outfit that should be so gung ho about, you know, renewable energy, alternative energy, alternative transportation, you know, every green buzzword you can you can find should be part of their ethos. And yet, to me, this seems like a very heavy handed ban. Now, I don't want to downplay the uh, impact of electric bike fires. It's not that this is, you know, a boogeyman. They do exist and people have died. It is a you know, a, a lethal problem. The issue, though, is that for the most part, these are really being, uh, you know, these few cases are being picked up in the media because it's a very clicky headline, you know, e-bike catches fire in an apartment kind of thing. But the reality is that every day, millions of e-bikes are charged successfully without issues. And so I don't think that, you know, these blanket bans where they say, you know, no bikes allowed in the building is the way to go here. For one, it's it's so easy to create a system where like you just get a sort of a parking sticker. If you can show that your bike has a UL label on it, like that's, that's not that hard. Secondly, I feel like if you want to make a blanket ban, it should be against charging in buildings and not necessarily against just storing. One of the biggest reasons people don't like uh, the idea of taking their e-bike somewhere is that it's expensive and they don't want to park it outside where it can be stolen. So just, you know, parking it in your office behind your desk, it's very common. I see that all the time where people just, you know, put their bike, even their, you know, fancy road bike that costs four or five thousand dollars and just put it behind their chair at work. And so to me, that's unfortunate that, you know, people are being forced to keep these bikes outside when they're worried about them getting, uh, you know, stolen or exposed to the weather, that sort of thing. I, like I said, I don't want to downplay virus here. It is a real thing, but it just seems a bit heavy handed. I don't know. Am I being too cavalier? What do you think? So, yeah, I mean, so it sounds like uh, this story may have uh, ruffled some feathers. Um, I know we had a, a commenter, uh, Noel Merkett, uh, who says he works at, um, or she, I don't know, is Noel a guy or a girl? Anyway, uh, that person says that they are employee at uh, NREL for over a decade. And of course, it, this story is sensationalized. Well, it's re not really because it this was something that was said if that policy has been reversed um since the story came out then you know maybe that's something to consider we should probably follow up since the fire marshal guy deleted his uh linkedin post 
But uh, that person says, I bike commute because parking is disincentivized. It's faster for me to get to work on a bike than park in the parking garage and walk five, 10 minutes to my building. I think that's great. That's that's great. Safety is a big deal at NREL. Uh, we should also say that you know we're big fans of NREL. That's, that a lot of cool stuff comes out of there. Uh, this isn't the only thing that they take really defensive positions on when it comes to safety. They have dozens of bike lockers available outdoors. Where Where is this, by the way? Is it in a warm area it's in colorado i'm not sure okay if it's high elevation or what yeah um they have dozen of bike lockers uh they have bike repair stations their offices aren't that big and almost nobody keeps bikes in their offices due to the abundant parking rather than tell people no e-bikes they installed outlets outdoors next to the bike racks just so people could charge their bikes at work uh so these are all kind of excuses, but like the fire marshal did say no e-bikes. So like the story, you know, still stands as, as written previously. I, I, uh, these things are all good things. Um, I think hopefully, uh, there's, you know, they're taking a more nuanced approach that we, you know, kind of like what we suggested and said, you know, like if you have, if you want to bring a bike inside, it's got to have these certain things. It's got to have, you know, a, uh, uh, ISO, what is it? The safety thing again? Um, UL 2849. Yeah. I forget the numbers. Yeah. One for bikes and one for batteries. Right. So UL listed bike or battery or both or one or the other. Anyway, um, all these things that are, you know, pretty easy to, to enforce. And if you're in the NREL, it's not like you're, you know, new to technology or, electronics or anything so theoretically you should have at least or you know your manager somebody's going to have some knowledge of this stuff so you know i think uh, hopefully what's happening is they are taking a more nuanced approach which is which was our suggestion um it is great that they have a lot of outdoor uh parking and charging and repair facilities um so it's all good stuff. Um, hopefully, you know, us publicizing this policy not only gets the NREL to kind of be more nuanced about their approach to uh, e-mobility, but also, you know, other uh, types of campuses are looking at this and saying, oh, you know, maybe we should be a little bit more nuanced with our approach here instead of just putting a blanket ban out, which, of course, is the easiest thing to do. Like a fire marshal guy is going to be like, hey, do I want to, you know, write out different policies. Lawyers are going to be like, uh, we don't want to have to deal with anything, just nothing. You know, it's the easiest thing to do, but like, you know, let's, let's try to be a little bit more nuanced about this. And there are things like easy, you know, uh, tiers to say, Hey, as long as the battery's, um, UL certified or the bike is UL certified, we, you know, those are pretty good things. So that's, that's kind of my take there. Definitely. I think that's fair. All right, let's move on here. Next, we have cars are bikes. Surprising results of a study reveal who breaks more road laws. And I know everybody's uncle on Facebook is going to be really excited to hear about this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you know how you, you see that um, bike riding through a stop sign? You're like, all those dang cyclists never obey traffic laws. Well, it turns out that most of them do. At least that's what this study found that it's not the only one to find this result. Uh, this particular one is a study that the uh, Danish government um, contracted with a uh, consulting firm who used uh, traffic cameras to study, I think it was 27 or 28,000 cyclists uh, throughout their commutes. And what they found was that in areas or in cities where there was good cycling infrastructure, cyclists ended up, um, I guess, breaking the, the law or, you know, having traffic infractions approximately 5% of the time. In more rural areas or cities that didn't have good cycling infrastructure, they found that the traffic violations among cyclists went up to about 14%. If you compare that to in the same areas, uh, studies of car traffic violations, they found that cars um, violated traffic law something like two-thirds of the time or about 67% of the time. Jeez. Yeah. And so like it's it's not even close. And so if you read through the, the study, what's interesting is the researchers 
Um, they're trying to suggest, you know, reasons for why this might be, especially because it runs so counterintuitive to what most people think would be the result. And what they explain is that it likely comes down to a visibility issue that when you see a cyclist, you know, riding on the sidewalk or riding through a red light or breaking traffic laws in any way, it's very visible. Like it sticks out and you're like, that guy is doing something wrong. But the number of daily traffic violations committed by cars, like it's just so commonplace that it doesn't even stick out in people's minds anymore. Like, you know, someone could be doing 40 miles an hour in a 30 and it just looks normal or someone, you know, slows down, but doesn't stop at a, a stop sign. Like, it just doesn't look that out of place. And so all of these are traffic violations. It's just when you see a cyclist slow down at a, a stop sign instead of stopping, people get irrationally angry about it. And so uh, the fact of the matter is that not only is, uh, you know, scofflaw cyclists not this endemic problem that a lot of people seem to think that it is, but the results of the study also sort of underline the importance of having proper cycling infrastructure, basically having true bike paths, bike lanes that, you know, aren't just painted on the side of the road because the study found that cyclists were three times as likely to break traffic law if they didn't have their own place to cycle, if they were basically forced to ride in the street. Interestingly, it found that the uh, single largest traffic violation in those cases was riding on the sidewalk. So basically it was cyclists trying to get away from the street so that they're not riding with cars. And I think that is really the take-home message here. Not just that, by and large, cyclists are not breaking the law in mass, but that to encourage even better um, traffic law awareness and um, um, compliance, that we should be trying to install more traffic infrastructure, that it would serve everybody, even drivers, by installing better cycling lanes, better bike paths, better multi-use paths. And that just seems to be, you know, part of the greater good, something that everyone can appreciate. I don't know. Am I like looking at the world through rose tinted glasses here? Seth? Well, you know, I, so I, I definitely agree with the high level premise that uh, building safe bike infrastructure is going to create less incentive for bike riders to break the law. I think as a uh, commenter, the top commenter put like, it's worth mentioning that some cyclists break traffic laws due to safety concerns. Intersections that are only designed for cars are one of the most dangerous places for cyclists. So many ride through a red light if traffic is clear to get out of the area. Um, you know, I don't want to out myself, but uh, I find myself, um, you know, running stop signs because I don't want to be in an intersection and I just want to like kind of get out of there, make a, you know, right. Um, there's also an energy component. Like I don't want to have to, you know, stop all the way, then start up all the way. I just want to keep moving. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think building infrastructure is absolutely going to lower the amount of, um, uh, law, law breaking that cyclists do. And like you said, it's not even close, even with, um, the, the infrastructure that's, um, in, uh, Denmark. Um, I think, you know, the cars are still going to make a ton of uh, uh, problematic uh, decisions um, for bikers, and and so you know it's still it's still a, a concern. But you know, like like uh, your wife on this uh, protected roadway here, like cars can't really. I mean, sure they could like run through those poles or something, but for the most part, being protected. May, means that you don't have to think about um, even if so, you know, the, the big complaint from car drivers is like, hey, the bikers are breaking the laws and they're going through a red light. And, you know, basically, I want to go through a red light, too. But it's <laughs> the, you know, if you're not even in the same roadway as a biker, I think you even care less about them breaking laws if they're if they are breaking laws. And theoretically, they're going to be breaking fewer laws. So, um yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of nuance to this, but I think the, you know, the big takeaway is like having infrastructure is going to reduce the amount of law breaking on both sides and the impact of those breaking the law. So, you know, that's, that's my big thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we should all sort of strive to achieve from this. And by we, I mean city planners. Right. All right, let's uh, do our uh, quick sponsor read. Today's episode is sponsored by Wolfbox, a leading brand in the automotive electronics market with unwavering commitment to quality and durability for its customers around the world. The team at Wolfbox believes that driving oftentimes more than just a means of transportation, it can be an adventure through waiting to unfold and the company wants to be your trusted companion during those journeys. Wolfbox sells a series of smart dash cams and other vehicle accessories in addition to perfect fit floor mats through their partnership with 3W Liners. For EV drivers, Wolfbox currently offers a level 2 home charger with adjustable current, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and plug-in charge capabilities. Whether you prefer to connect your home via NEMA plug or hardwire directly to your existing system, Wolfbox's internal Indoor-outdoor EV charger is compatible with all J1772 plugs and empowers drivers to schedule and monitor their home charge session from anywhere using their smartphone. Save 30% off your Wolfbox Level 2 EV charger on the company's Amazon store for a limited time. Um, And you can hit that link in the show notes. Learn more at wolfbox.com. A big thank you to Wolfbox for sponsoring. All right. Uh... Next up, we have Yamaha, and they're announcing a new battery swapping for electric bikes. This one, it's called AnyRing. It's spelled E-N-Y ring, and it's Yamaha's own sort of in-house electric bike battery swapping system, as if we didn't have enough swappable battery standards. Here's one more for us to uh, put on the, the table here. And so Yamaha's is designed as a way that they can partner with other companies and incorporate these swappable batteries into bikes. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of tech specs here. I can't tell you how big the battery is, what voltage it is, that kind of stuff. They haven't released it. But what they have talked about is the idea of how this would work. They envision having battery swap stations around cities so that people could just roll up, uh, pop out their depleted battery and put in the charged one and continue on their way. It's not a novel idea. Plenty of companies use this system. Perhaps the most famous is Gogoro, um, which I actually use on a daily basis. My electric scooter has swappable batteries. And about once a week, I go by a swap station in my city and I get a new battery and put mine in there. I don't own the batteries. And that's the idea here is that people wouldn't own the batteries, that they would be able to have a more affordable bike and they would just swap batteries. The interesting thing about this specific system is that Yamaha is already talking about what happens to these batteries once they get old. And what they're saying is that once the batteries get below uh, 70% capacity compared to original, which is largely considered end of life for micromobility batteries, uh, they're already saying that they're going to take these cells out and build um, like energy storage batteries. So for you know, like on-site um, permanent uh, energy installations, because these battery cells, even though they're not great for, for mobile storage anymore and for, for vehicles, they can still be used as energy storage devices. So it's interesting that they've got this built into the business plan to begin with as sort of a complete life cycle system for these cells, especially since a lot of these are using uh, non-renewable resources. And so it is really important to consider how we're using these. The issue is that there's not a lot of specifics about how this system is going to be implemented. Yamaha is talking about working with partners, but we don't actually see any bike companies or any other partners hopping on board yet. So it's a cool idea. Obviously, it comes with the backing of a massive company. Like, you know, if, if Yamaha wants to make bikes happen, they will, or like pianos or swimming pools, I think. Like they, they can make just about anything. So why not swappable batteries? Um, but, uh, you know, I just, I, I don't see any, concrete evidence that this has started or that it's anything more than like an idea yet. I, I want to believe, like I want to see them make swappable batteries for bikes happen, especially if that leads to some kind of standard that other companies sort of sign up for the way there's probably a dozen or more scooter companies that have sort of signed on to GoBros batteries and have started building scooters to fit their batteries. If that happens for bikes. That'd be awesome. And maybe this is what it takes. You know, it takes some big name manufacturer to say, here's our standard. Everyone choose this one. If that's, if that's what it takes, like, cool, I'll, I'll hop on board. I'll use a Yamaha battery. So maybe that's what we can get out of this. But until 
until I see, you know, real usage, real names of bike companies that are signed on, I don't know if I'm going to get too excited here. I've, I've been burned before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if this is all that they're putting out, this is, you know, pretty early stage. And I don't know why you would want to kind of hold back on, on your progress here because, you know, you want to be kind of a first mover and get other people to sign up. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know what the idea is here. Maybe they're trying to get some publicity and, and see if there's interest and then move forward if there is interest. One thing I do like about um, the very little um, information we do have is that this is obviously shaped more like something that would work in e-bike space more than like, you know, it would take, it would be kind of weird to put a um, go, go row battery on an e-bike. It's, it's just too square and it, it fits the uh, scooter um, the form, factor, plat- yeah. form factor a lot, a lot better. So like I, I get the need for something that would work on bikes and Yamaha is obviously in that space and it makes a lot of sense. So I like, all of that, like you said, it's a, it's a great thing. Um, but you know, I also wonder like, would it be better to have something that was go, go, row compatible that would fit a bike form factor or something? It just seems like I, I don't know that we need two separate standards coming out and, and man, it would be really nice if our you know government would come out and say, Hey, let's make some standards here for bikes and, and actually for power tools too. And, uh, you know, like, here's what it has to do. It's got to be this voltage, uh, this amperage or, you know, whatever, you know, this range of whatever. And then it's got to be this form factor. It's got to fit into this, you know, thing. I mean, you know, from the power tools perspective, you know, this is something I've been railing against for a long time. There's like 30 different standards for, you know, Greenworks and, and Cobalt and, skill and like there's like 17 there's just so many different things and a lot of them use the exact same oem part and then put on a plastic piece that makes it not compatible with their competitor it's really it's like almost like a competitive thing to make their their batteries less competitive which you would think like all right maybe get into the battery business like make a battery for your competitor that also works with yours and then you know all of a sudden you have a uh, uh, you know, another product, but these, these companies are in the, you know, for, in this case, the bike business, they're, they're, they're differentiators, they're bike building the same with power tools The you know, green, Greenworks isn't a battery company. They're a, a power tool making company. So they want to make, you know, that's their differentiator. So they don't want people just taking their batteries and going, you know, elsewhere with them. That's where the, the differentiation and the, and the money comes from. So back to this thing, the any ring, um, you know, make it, let's make it happen. This is very early stages. We'd love to see something like this. And if it has to be a different standard than Gogoro, then so be it. But, you know, eventually we're going to have a, a kind of like the knack situation, uh, in, in car charging where the best, the best solution is going to win. And, uh, so we'll see what happens there, I guess. Yeah, one day. Yep. All right. Uh, This bike was specifically designed to bring transportation to low-income rural areas. I really like this one. Uh, I'll tell you right now, it's not an electric bike. It's a pedal bike. That's okay because we're all about alternative transportation. And this is just a really cool story. Um, This is the Buffalo bike. It's been out for a little while now. um, But the whole idea is that this bike was designed for low-income rural areas is basically like a very easy to use, easy to work on, kind of bulletproof bike. It was developed by the World Bicycle Relief. It's uh, a program that sends these bikes out to places uh, across Africa, across South America, to basically these rural villages where people don't have a way to get around. And so they empower people by giving them transportation and a bike that's strong enough to, you know, load a hundred pounds of water on the back of it, or, you know, like run a small business off of it. And to me, what's really cool about this, in addition to just the fact that these are you know, changing people's lives, is looking at the bike itself and say, all right, so if their goal was to build a bike that's going to last a long time and be super simple, like what did they put in it? And so this is basically a very simple steel frame bike. You know, there's no point in making it extra lightweight. 
and steel is just going to last longer. It's a single speed, so you don't have a derailleur or an internally geared hub or expensive finicky parts. There are no handbrakes. It's just a coaster brake in the back, which, you know, if you're flying downhill at 30 miles an hour, is not going to be the, the safest method. But for most Wait, of these you, flat areas. It kind of looks like there's a brake on the on this one. There's a cable that goes down. And then um, like, yeah, that is not. strange. I'm not sure what that is because it doesn't have. Uh, maybe maybe that's a enhanced version or something. Yeah, or that's like the PNG is doing something weird. Um, but yeah, it's just got a coaster brake there. Um, okay. That might actually be, I don't know, it's got like a reflector and a basket mount up there. But yeah, none of these seem to have any any handbrakes on them. Um, no suspension also. Again, like one more part that could break. And so it's just interesting to see like the parts that they cut out and the parts that they ruggedized to make sure these bikes are as long lasting as possible. The other cool thing this is something that I feel like is missed with a lot of these charities is like, you know, like there's criticism of some of these like shoe charities, right. That they come in and they dump like 20,000 shoes in an area in Africa and they like destroy the local economy and all the the cobblers go out of business or whatever. So here they they actually focus on empowering the community as well. So when they come in with all these free bikes, they also train a lot of the locals to be bike mechanics. So suddenly you've created this like second industry where there are people that live in the village and they're, maintaining these bikes. So, you know, they're patching tires, they're fixing something that's, that breaks, that sort of thing. So to me, this is just really interesting from, from multiple angles. And at the end of the day, it's like, uh, you know, very simple. I think $165 was the price point for these. So um, they take donations. Uh, I made a donation myself. I donated one bike. So, um, you know, if someone wants to do that, they can. Um, $165 sends somebody somewhere a uh, a bike that could just be like a uh, a life changing thing, and so myself as someone who gets around almost entirely uh, on two wheels, you know, I've, I've really come to appreciate just the the deep impact it has on on someone to have that kind of freedom and mobility, and so this was like a no brainer to me, like just seeing people that don't have access to transportation getting these like bulletproof rugged bikes. I think that's awesome. Yeah, and I. I... The front, the front uh, bent fork is that considered suspension? I mean, I, I feel like that's why they bend those. Is that? So I think it's got something to do with the uh, rake angle. That when you actually put the the axle in front of the point where the fork angles down to where it would impact the ground, it uh-huh. creates what's called I think it's it's called trail if I'm not mistaken. Basically, it makes it more stable, like a caster. That's why oh, you can okay. like take your hands off when you're riding. Right. Um, because of the, uh, there's some engineering in there that I'm not like totally sure of, but it's got something to okay. do with yeah, putting that that point out in front of the the fork. And and so like just to go back a little bit, like I know Trek is big in in this area. Like who actually builds these bikes? Like where are they built? Where are they? Yeah, it's a good question. I have to assume they're built probably in China or Taiwan, just because that's where the industry is. And if your goal mm-hmm. is to reduce cost, then you know, I, I can't imagine anywhere else, though, now that I say that, there has been a lot of expansion into countries like Vietnam and, and such, especially with all of the uh, anti-dumping tariffs that, um, uh, you know, have been applied to China in the last few years. So, But I'm sure it's somewhere in, in East Asia. Yeah. And, you know, I guess it would be, you know, if you're training people how to fix these things, maybe you could just send frames and wheels over and and they they theoretically could build them locally, but this is obviously a really cool, uh, idea. Um, it wouldn't be hard to, to motorize these as well. So like, that's something to think about, like, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, there's a opportunity for a, not, not a Copenhagen wheel type of situation, but, you know, maybe a, uh, you know, if this is a $165 bike, maybe uh, another hundred bucks gets a, a small battery and a little motor on there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and the front brake, like, like this one kind of sort of looks like. Yeah, it's it's weird. I don't know why that one picture seems to have a cable. You're absolutely right. Um, I also noticed the uh, the uh, kickstand on that. Is that the standard kickstand on all these? It looks like it is. Yeah, yeah, it's that. Um, That's good I've for loading. I've seen that like in Asia, maybe once or twice in Europe. I've never seen those in the U.S., that really wide rear 
Yeah, saying. usually you see you see them on like um, bigger bikes. I guess cargo bikes have those kind of a lot. Yeah, but but they're sometimes loaded up in the middle as well. Yeah, and like you can see in the pictures, a lot of people are using these to transport like big, uh, you know, five gallon, ten gallon things of right. water. So that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and a sidekick stand is not going to help with that at all. Yeah, that's the worst is when you you have something heavy back there and you try to use that sidekick stand. Yeah, not going to happen. All right, moving on. Uh, Horwin makes a U.S. electric motorbike debut, but at a price. Yeah, I've been following Horwin for several years. Um, they started with these more like sort of classically styled, almost retro electric motorcycles. So it's interesting to see them really launch towards this futuristic design. Uh, if you're if you've been following the electric uh, light motorcycle or maxi scooter market. You can probably already tell what model this one is kind of imitating. To me, it looks... BMW? Um, exactly, yeah. It looks a lot like the BMW CE04. Yep. Which is interesting because it's also priced uh, somewhere around the same price, which if you're a, a new Asian manufacturer trying to enter the U.S. market, like it's going to be tough to come in with BMW pricing at like $17,000. Yeah, I mean, you want to go with a brand you wouldn't know and love and... BMW is obviously not going to be gone in a, a year or two. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, Horwin has been around for, for several years. I don't know when they were founded. I've been following them since like 2018. So, you know, they're not like a, a new startup or anything, but uh, you know, obviously BMW is going to have their whole um, service network. They're going to have a, you know, a rider community, basically everything you need. And so unless you just really, really like this design, which you know, it's not a copy of BMW CEO 4 It does have some unique things. Then um, I'm not sure how you're convincing someone to, to go with this. But, I mean, they, they made a slick-looking bike. Uh, they started with a slick-looking bike to <laughs> get the inspiration from. But they uh, they built something nice here. Uh, I'm not sure if we have an exact release date yet for this bike. Um, I think they were talking about near the end of the year giving reservation holders test rides. So... You know, this isn't going to be coming anytime soon. Don't expect it for like the 2024 riding season kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like, you know, they're absolutely planning on bringing this to the U.S. It's not, uh, you know, a Europe only model like we've seen in the past from Horwin, where they, you know, really started with a much larger European expansion before considering North America. So that excites me. And just the fact that we're seeing another electric maxi scooter kind of excites me. I mean, these things are fairly powerful i think it was um let's see 74 kilowatts it's like 100 horsepower that's, that's crazy that's a good yeah, that, car yeah that's um i mean some of the like flagship motorcycles uh i think only zero's top uh models have more power than that and i think they're only slightly more like 80 kilowatts so and is B bmw's version is that similar in horsepower I, maybe that maybe that's their justification for the i think price. this is actually higher power yeah than, than bmw's version um and a zero also, to 60 time of 2.8 seconds that's how do you yeah i'll, I'll believe that when i see it <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah like i've done the zero to 60 on a live wire and like that takes some serious power and some serious engineering like you can't just have uh you know some schmuck on a bolted together bike doing that. Right. So we'll, we'll see if that pans out. They do say 125 mile an hour top speed. So maybe they really are building this thing in serious performance. But again, like I'll believe it when I see it. It's easy to put that on the spec sheet at a CES right. unveiling. Yep. I mean, it looks cool. It, it's got like incredible performance. It's got everything. If they can actually build them and deliver on some of their promises. Um, we know the space is full of, uh, you know, over-promising and under-delivering. So hopefully yeah. they can get somewhere close to that. Um, yeah. And it certainly looks cool. Like it, that front light almost reminds me of a Rivian light a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's, it's like they got one Rivian light. I mean, that's where they're saving costs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> careful. I, I, think, I feel like Rivian may have that uh, copyrighted or something. All right, moving on. Oh, this is uh, this is the one I'm an expert at. Uh, the Cyrusher <laughs> Ripple. Are electric snowboards going to be a thing? So this is exciting for me for a couple of reasons. One, I'm a huge snowboarding fan, and obviously I like the electrification of non-electrified uh, 
things like bikes. But um, so it's also exciting because uh, we I just received mine last night. Uh, so I'm going to have an actual review. Uh, my son's a big snowboarder. Um, and we're living in Vermont for the the winter, so I'm going to have lots of time to try this thing out. Um, let's play this video. Um, there's not much out there about this thing. It kind of debuted at CES. Um, and like I, the, the bigger, I mean, it's, it's a cool idea that, you know, I've been thinking about for a long time. I was thinking about actually having uh, like wheel, wheel type things on the sides of the snowboard rather than, you know, cutting a hole in the snowboard and actually making a big wheel there. So this is kind of a new idea for me, but, um, and if, you know, if you're watching, uh, you can see how, like, there's a lot of questions <laughs> to be answered. Like, what is that suspension for? Um, but, uh, I actually got it yesterday. Um, I charged up the battery. I'm going to actually try to take it out today. Um, the snow right now is pretty good for this. So, um, you know, if you don't see me again, this is why, uh, I'm but you didn't just take it out immediately when the box opened. So I did, um, I put it, I put it on the snow. I didn't actually get on it because we had to put, um, bindings on, um, wow. and, uh, the, the board that I kind of used as a, um, surrogate, surrogate, no, what is it? A donor, um, was in it. long story. Anyway, I, it didn't get together till last night, but I actually did, um, try it out on the, uh, on the, in the like driveway, which is full of snow right now. And it, and it, like even in there, so there's three modes, there's like sport mode, normal mode, and like learning mode, even in learning mode, it kind of just went shot right off. Um, top speed is 31 miles per hour, which wow. to me seems like, like certain death. Um, <laughs> it's funny. The first page of the uh, manual is basically just warnings. Like you're going <laughs> to die. If you do anything wrong, <laughs> if you don't follow every single rule here, you're going to die. So, um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically, uh, it's a snowboard. Um, I don't even know the exact price, but I know that, um, they're going to give electric readers a, uh, discount of, I think 30%. So it'll be significant. Um, there is one person, uh, this, this is a, uh, Eastern European, maybe Russian, uh, guy who, um, got a early model and, and you can see how he takes off. Like, you know, he's wearing jeans, so he's a Jerry, obviously, and and uh, the the wheel looks different, but but he kind of just moves out, you know. Like if this is how it works, I think I'm down with it. Like I think this would be a cool thing to like kind of explore the forest and take my dog on a walk through the uh, you know the the snow covered uh, area around here in Vermont. So um, you know, I'm into it. Uh, I'm excited about it, but. The reality is, I don't know if this is going to be like a real product, and I kind of feel like Cyrusher that uh, it's a company that ma a Chinese company that makes a lot of e-bikes. I think um, this may be kind of a uh, publicity item. Like, I, d I just don't think the market is for something like this is going to be huge. Don't know. Maybe they're you know maybe they're finding out. But um, I don't know. What do you think? Would you jump on one of these? I mean. I'll try anything once. Okay. <laughs> I would all love right. to hop on one of these. I, I, I have so many questions though. So first of all, where's the battery? So the battery is in a backpack and there's a wire that comes out of your backpack uh -huh. down to the motor. And um, that doesn't reduce the weight as much as you would hope. So the thing is actually <laughs> incredibly heavy. Like, uh, and it's obviously all the weight is in the back. So <laughs> that's kind of a weird starting situation. Also, that wheel looks kind of scary, but it's not, it's like a soft plastic. So wow. when I first saw this thing, I was like, you know, if my finger gets caught in there, it's like, am I, <laughs> is it over for me? And uh, like, uh, it's not like that. It's a, a little bit softer than you would think. Also, the wheel is like, I don't know, I want to say like two inches above, or it goes two inches below the, the board. And that suspension doesn't really do much even though it looks like a big part of the, the rig that it's, you know, I tried putting my weight on the suspension and, and actually the bend in the board does a lot more than the suspension does. So I don't, I don't know if they just, you know, pick this part up off of, a, you know, out of a parts bin that had this suspension. Um, but it is like, it is super powerful. The, um, it, it, so it's weird because, um, Cy Rusher is saying 3,300 here, but like, um, on the, um, Instagram page that, 
was advertising to me. It was twenty one ninety nine. Um, but it is like this is a serious like serious equipment. They have uh, the battery is like, um, let's see, twelve point six amp hour battery. So this is something I'm wearing on my back. A you know six hundred thirty watt hour battery, <laughs> um, which also has USB ports. So you know, nice. in case I uh, lose my legs, I can power up my phone or something. Um, coffee yes. Yes. Um, it's got a 156 centimeter deck size. So I typically, um, I'm, I use a 160 right now. So pretty close to my, my normal size, but the, it's weird because the, the whole apparatus is like right behind my rear leg. Um, so that's going to be, I don't, I don't know what that's going to be like. And then, so the weight is 33 pounds. Like a typical snowboard is a few, maybe like three pounds. So you're talking about like, <laughs> you're talking about 10 times the normal weight and that's all in the back. So that's weird. Um, and it, you know, they say uh, 15 to 20 kilometers or 12 miles of range, which is a weird metric to even think about with snowboarding because, you know, like I, I have a, <clears throat> an app that kind of tracks my snowboarding and, um, you know, it'll say like, Hey, you did 12 miles today, but I can't imagine actually being powered that long. So these are all like questions I can't wait to find the answers to. So I, I just noticed that Mario in the comments said, uh, snowmobile snowboard, which makes me wonder, could you put like a chair or like a bleacher seat on it or something? And like, I mean, have the tiniest snowmobile. You could, I mean, why, why not? And that's the other thing. Like, I don't know how you steer this thing because, you know, you typically steer a snowboard by, you know, leaning over and, and catching an edge, but this thing's super heavy. Uh, like, I just don't know, like, like you, you kind of, ex like part of catching an edge on a snowboard is like, you're going a constant speed and you do like, you, you know, you have this balance equation in your head, like, all right, I'm going this fast. I need to lean this much, but like, it's hard to tell how fast you're going and like, you know, you're speeding up and slowing down so many times. So so many questions and i i'm actually like like shaking with so much like excitement about answering all these things but yeah. you know hopefully it doesn't end badly for me so now that you mentioned the steering i do realize that that video of the one guy using it he goes like arrow straight the entire yeah the whole time <laughs> i know and it's it, it's very like so this guy here He's just like, you know, playing around with it for a second and like, okay, am I going to kill myself? And then, you know, he's <laughs> like, all right, bye to my kids and family. And then, <laughs> then he's just like, goes forward and that, that looks good. But like, how are you going to like lean with all that weight at the bottom there? Like, I don't know what that's going to be like. I haven't seen anybody actually using it. Like, like what a snowboard would actually be like how a snowboard would be used. So I, I am a little bit like, like this guy here, like he's going straight, but like, is that the same board? It looks a little different. I think it's just the same. Uh, I don't know. I mean, these the were all prototypes. Board. I mean, yeah. honestly, the, the the one they sent me with this battery, it's it feels very prototypey. Like you're oh, basically yeah. putting. <laughs> um, I got it turned on yesterday. That was pretty much it, and it scared the crap out of me. So. Today is going to be a really interesting day. Yeah, I cannot wait to hear how this goes. And, oh, and like, it's so heavy that you have to carry it with the wheel, like, like rolling on the bottom. And then, like, all right, so turn. Where's the turns? Okay, he's oh, turned a little there. He turned a little bit. Now he's on like grass. I don't know. Okay, he's turning there. We're going to need like a yeah. special edition podcast tomorrow just to like hear what happened. We can't wait. Well, wait. we'll talk about it next week for sure because I'm going to do a post on it. But um, yeah, that'll get people interested hopefully uh people who are interested in this can uh hear about it or maybe i'll be in the hospital and we won't talk about anything um well fingers crossed that we're talking about this next time yeah for sure all right so let's move over to the comments we have some good ones at the beginning if anybody has some comments or questions throw it into facebook uh youtube or linkedin if you're listening live um first one is from christopher ray um, issues as a manufacturer is the legitimacy of the UL certifications on the market. We're paying close to $60,000 per model for the certification, while 99% of the scooters on Amazon, for example, all claim UL listing, but guaranteed or not, 
until there's a proper way to ensure all imports to the U.S. are UL legitimate or not, we'll keep seeing these fires and bans, unfortunately. So what do you know about, um, you know, Amazon fake? Like, does it cost the same to UL list a whole vehicle bike as it is a battery? Maybe that's. You know, there's Something. definitely different UL um, certifications. There's the one for the uh, battery and one for the entire e-bike. Um, in this case, uh, Chris is talking about scooters, which I'm not sure if they even have their own separate um, UL certification figure. Uh, Chris, by the way, is the uh, co-founder of Apollo Scooters. Um, really oh, wow. cool dude. I've met him um, before. And Apollo's, I mean, they, they know what they're doing. They're one of the few companies that like, really builds their ground up scooters as opposed to just like taking parts out of the catalog. So like he definitely knows the industry. And um, I think what he's saying definitely, you know, holds water. Um, that's one of the criticisms, by the way, of this whole UL thing is that like there's the UL like nonprofit part. And then there's the profit side of UL, which charges a lot of money to certify. So, yeah, that crop. seems kind of crazy. Like why does it cost that much? Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing is that, so there are on the one side companies that are just like faking these or just buying like fake certificates, but there are also legitimate testing labs that test two UL certifications, but they are not UL's own like underwriter laboratories that oh, interesting. You know, does theirs. So um, like I ran into that issue with uh, one of uh, electrics, uh, electric e-bikes models. I think it was their XPeak recently that they say, you know, it's, um, UL certified, whatever. And then I put that in the post and someone from UL reached out and was like, they're not on our list. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I went back to them and they explained that like, well, actually we went to this like Swiss testing company, which they are like one of the top certification labs. And so they tested it and certified that it didn't meet the UL standards, but it wasn't UL themselves testing it. So you got that kind of interesting like, gray area. Yeah. The, the yeah, whole I, thing I, is, is I kind of feel like the UL should kind of divorce themselves from the the monetization part, like maybe that's something the government should get involved with rather than yeah. uh, a private company. Tell that to whoever's cashing the checks. Right, right, right. <laughs> All right. Uh, in regard to the, um, the bikes breaking fewer laws than the cars, uh, we got a, a couple from Dan M. Eric Adams, who's the mayor of New York, should be there. New York <laughs> City is the Wild West. It is the Wild West. We, we kind of know that, but... Um, and that's caused a lot of problems. The overall challenge is infrastructure. I live on Queens Boulevard in Queens, New York. New York City added barriers protecting the bike lane, and it basically became a double parking nightmare. Queens Boulevard has been named uh, the Boulevard of Death, unfortunately. Um, I wonder if it's a nightmare for cars because screw them. No. Uh, I wonder if it's the double parking nightmare is, is for bikes or cars, though. Um, buildings are going on fire in New York city due to these e-bikes, a huge problem. Uh, we've discussed that kind of a lot. Um, you know, they're the UL listing that the whole reason for the UL listing, uh, thing in New York was because of the fires. Um, so, you know, those are all things to consider. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, the Queens Boulevard thing I'd have to look into. I don't know what, um, if we're if this is a car guy complaining about bikers or a biker complaining about cars or, or what, what, what's your read on that? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm guessing that, you know, the issue is that if cars can't park in the bike lane, then they park in the road and then someone double parks them. And now you've got like one lane of traffic left and the rest of the road is turned into a parking lot. Um, to me, that sounds like what the issue is, but the things that I don't know about, Queens could fill a book. So, all right. Uh, moving on, uh, we have a, a stream of consciousness uh, from uh, Mario Madness. I say the only problem with some mopeds in other regions got to register. Seventeen uh, K. Ouch! That was for the um, the horns. Motor- yeah, uh, he owns a Suron, which is cheaper, but also not homologated, likely, and and saving a lot of cost on uh, things that a lot of people value. I do not, I don't know how electric snowboard would work. Uh, like an off-road skateboard. Uh, that is a good point. I guess we have electric off-road skateboards and, and on-road skateboards. Uh, having a snowboard 
is kind of like the evolution of that, I guess, right? Yeah. And, you know, to me, so this is another thing that I forgot to mention during that, but that to me, I see it similar to the way um, electric surfboards were introduced into the surfing world is that they don't mm -hmm. serve the same purpose. Like you're not going out and like, you know, surfing a pipeline on an electric surfboard. That's not the point. Right. It's that it allows you to do the sport on water that you would never have been able to surf before, like a lake right. or a river or something like that. And so right. to me, that's what this, this ripple is doing. It's like, it allows you to snowboard like up a hill or on perfectly flat land. Yeah. I mean, we live right on the mountain here, so it's, it's almost like kind of the worst spot to get this thing because I got to go find a flat place and the only flat place are like roads really. So, uh, which are plowed typically. Um, so I, I've got to go look for a field somewhere to try this out in. Um, and it, unless it starts snowing today. So, uh, that'll be an interesting thing to try out. Also another thing, uh, so something I should have mentioned previously, um, it says that you can go up 20% grade hills. That's so 20% is huge, right? Yeah, you um, might snowball back down it if you're not careful. Well, well what, what's kind of interesting is, do you remove the need for a chairlift at that point? Like, oh. you just you just go right up the mountain like an electric bike would go up a, a you know, a, a, a dirt bike mountain as well. So yeah, that's interesting. Something to consider. Yeah, you got to wax them. Regular snowboard is faster. Going downhill for sure. Uh, spiked wheels. That's what it's got. Sounds terrible by an ATV or a snowmobile. Well, that's what we kind of came up with. A snowmobile snowboard. Uh, and I think oh, we're the fires, done. I think, was the third-party chargers. Oh, yeah. Well, that looks All like right. uh, everything to me. So uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. As always, it's great having you. And we will see you back here uh, in another two weeks for the next episode of the Wheelie Podcast.